Shalom, y'all. As I shared in yesterday's sermon, I am beyond honored to be back at Calvary in the presence of so many of you who mean the world to me, rabbinically, communally, and personally. And to be with a pastor like the Reverend Paul McLean, who I admire so much for, among other things, the pastoral comfort I have personally witnessed him bring to families and individuals. It's a privilege to be with Kristen, too, our amazing choir master and organist. If you know the words to Psalm 19, um, please join me in singing this easy melody as I get ready. Uh, Temple Israel members, don't be shy. You're at home here at Calvary. People here are like mishpacha. That's Southern Yiddish for family. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my My dear friends, the Bible we share records amazing stories of transformation, perhaps none more so than Jacob's growth from spiritual infancy to religious maturity. You'll recall that Jacob flees from the wrath of his brother Esau, whom Jacob had betrayed. Jacob wanders alone in the wilderness. The sun sets, so Jacob places a rock under his head and lays down to sleep on the cool desert sands. Jacob has a dream. He envisions a ladder set upon the earth, stretching upwards to the very heights of heaven. And behold, Scripture records, angels of God were ascending and descending on the ladder. And behold, the Lord stood beside him and said, Behold, Jacob, I am with you, and I will keep you safe wherever you go. And then Jacob awakens out of his sleep and says, Surely the Lord is even in this desert place, and I did not know it. Jacob was surprised to find God in the desert because Jacob, like the people of his time, believed that the presence of God was restricted to certain places and designated shrines. While understandable, this is a childish perception of the divine, since God is no more confined to one place than a star is confined to one person's vision. Jacob's spiritual development will unfold in his dream as he learns that God speaks to each person according to his or her spiritual, mental, and emotional capacity. Jacob learns that the whole earth 
it has sparks of God's glory and that God is neither uncaring about what we do here on earth, nor is God removed from us in some heavenly abode. Jacob learns that every spot on earth, even the desert, can become a gateway to heaven for someone. We can all benefit from this lesson of Jacob's dream. It's a timeless message for anyone who cares enough to grow up spiritually. And it's an important idea in the endless search for the meaning of God in the world and in our lives. Because most of us can find God not only to special places like a church, but to special moments, mostly happy ones. We find God in the mystery of new life, in the wonder of a newborn child, or in the memorable, magical moment of a wedding ceremony. Those are usually the times when we sing with the psalmist, Ma'adir Shimcha B'chola Aretz, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. But God also dwells in the shadows of life, when we endure the loss of a loved one, when we suffer the pain of deep disappointment, when we wait anxiously by the bedside of a dangerously ill parent, spouse, child, or friend. It is then when we also join hands with the psalmist who said that in his times of affliction, and challenge, he discovered God then too. The story is told about a rabbi who uh, once entered heaven in a dream. And the rabbi was permitted to approach the place in paradise where the greatest sages of Judaism were spending their eternal lives. He saw that they were just sitting around tables reading texts on God and humanity. And the rabbi wondered aloud, is this all our sages do in heaven? Suddenly he heard a voice reply, you're mistaken. The rabbis are not in heaven. Heaven is in the rabbis. This is a central lesson of my Jewish faith. One finds God not only in prayer, or at moments, or in a place, but in the pursuit of learning and wisdom and deep questioning. God is in the very minds and hearts of scientists as they unravel the theories and mysteries of the universe. God is in the harmony and symmetry of the physical world, in the delicate structure of a flower, in the cherry blossoms, in the incredible force of natural law, and in the inscrutable secrets of human growth and human perseverance. God is found in hearts that break and hearts that mend. God is found in acts of courage and determination, as well as in moments of sorrow and the strength to overcome crushing setback. The great rabbi and philosopher Abraham Joshua Heschel who marched alongside Martin Luther King Jr. in Selma, said while walking over the Edmund Pettus Bridge, quote, I felt as though my feet were praying. Heschel always emphasized Jacob's radical amazement, the awe of each moment, the wonder of being, 
existence itself is miraculous. Think of it for a moment, he said. We should be amazed that we can see anything at all. And we should be amazed at the things we cannot see, but know to be true, like love, the values of compassion, the unexpectedness of being in the sanctuary itself. We should be amazed by the fact that there is existence at all. But God's physical universe is not the only divine domain. God dwells in the moral world, too. I mentioned yesterday that before becoming a rabbi, while in graduate school for government and public policy, I audited an evening course at Boston University taught by Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel. Professor Wiesel's constant refrain was, listening to a witness makes you a witness. That sentence echoes Isaiah 43, atem adonai, y'all are my witnesses, declares the Lord. The Hebrew atem really is y'all. It's you plural, because each and every one of you, each and every one of us is called to be a witness to the state of our society, nation, and world, and to act based on what we witness. Just one more Hebrew word, just one more, from Leviticus 19.33. God says, God, when a G-E-R in Hebrew, ger, resides with you in your land, you shall not wrong him. This ger who resides with you shall be to you as one of your citizens. You shall love him as yourself, for you were gerim, that's a lot of gers, that's multiple, in the land of Egypt. I, the Lord, am your God. Leviticus 19.33. What does this word ger or gerim in the plural mean? English translations often read, stranger, but the greatest biblical commentators of all from the Hebrew original, Rashi in particular, says, and I quote, wherever this Hebrew word occurs in the Bible, ger, it signifies someone who was not born in the land where you are presently living, but who came from another country to sojourn there, end quote. Rashi, who survived the slaughter of Jews in the first crusade in 1096 in the Rhineland. Rashi, who comforted and supported suffering Jewish communities murdered by the crusaders, interprets loving the stranger, the gear, as loving the immigrant because of this biblical commandment to love the gear one whose color, nationality, culture, and creed is different than one's own. That was Rashi in 1096. What about us? Did you know between 2016 and 2017, there really was a 12-fold increase in immigrant children separated from their parents by the U.S. government, despite the court order to reunify the remaining 2,600 children taken from their parents, we now have learned that our government never had a clear picture of how many children 
it had ripped away from their parents in the first place upon arriving at the border as a gare. Hundreds of separated children remain in American custody to this day, two days later. This is a moral issue of biblical proportions, not a political issue with partisan passions. And God is waiting. If it's hard to wrap our heads around being bystanders to this inhumane crime committed against children and parents who are gayrim in biblical language, who look and sound different on the outside, but are equally godly on the inside. What about the 46% of Tennesseans who are poor among the 140 million poor people in this country? What about the 37 million Americans who still do not have health insurance and the thousands of forgotten men, women, and children in this country who die because they lack access to health care? Is poverty not a moral imperative for humans to repair rather than rationalize? Aren't impregnated teenage girls who have suffered from the sexual aggression of men as much a religious issue as the embryos inside them? What about blaming everything for gun violence on everything except the guns that killed 32,000 Americans in a nation where you need an ID to get a beer, but not a lethal weapon. And no matter what some preach, please do not be led to believe that the God of the Old Testament approves of biblical justifications for other people's sufferings. In the book of Job, for instance, after this righteous man loses everything, remember, he loses his wealth, his health, even his family. He refuses to curse God, but then the stakes are raised when Job's friends show up and they try to comfort him. And their comfort takes the form of theological justifications for Job's suffering based on cherry-picking Bible verses which suggest that people are rewarded for good deeds and punished for bad ones. You must have done something to deserve this suffering, they say to the grieving Job. But Job will have none of it. He not only insists on his innocence, he demands that God appear and explain what has happened to him. And in the end, if you read the book of Job to the end, God does appear in a whirlwind. But God doesn't explain anything. God speaks of cosmic mysteries and our smallness and Job's inability to understand the universe and his own life. But in the book's Final passage, God says to Job, pray for those three friends' well-being too, the ones who try to justify your suffering. Job makes the final cut of the Bible. Story of Hanukkah didn't. Wiesel argues it made the final cut to ensure that we do not take the earlier childish theology which Jacob also had before his dream. We do not take the childish theology of reward and punishment in the Bible too far. In other words, if you want to use the theology of reward and punishment to explain your own suffering, that's your choice. But never, never when it comes to the suffering of others. Job was not patient. 
and he certainly was not obedient. He wrestles with God, just as Jacob will. Jacob's name will be changed to Israel. That's exactly what the name Israel means, one who wrestles with God and doesn't lie down. As we learn from Job, Wiesel says, the last thing God wants from us is to sit there and be passive. God wants us to fight for justice and to question. If you have faith, question it. If you have doubt, question it. Whether you have certainty or uncertainty, question it. And the questions will lead you higher. The spiritual maturity Jacob realizes in his dream includes this notion that God wants something more than obedience. Remember Jacob's grandpa, Abraham, who convinced God to change his mind after Abraham points out the injustice of killing the innocent with the guilty. Remember that? Abraham talks God out of it. Clearly the God of Abraham and Jacob, our God, wants human partners with whom to enter into a relationship. And this pattern will repeat itself throughout the Hebrew Bible. Remember what happened after the golden calf? When God threatens to destroy the Jewish people? Moses has the chutzpah, that's gall, to say to God, God, if you destroy my people, then erase me, your prophet, from your Bible. And God backs down. The big idea is that in Judaism, one may revolt against God so long as it is on behalf of one's fellow human beings who are suffering. Faith must never be used as a weapon against other human beings. But as Wiesel teaches, it can be used as a weapon against God for the sake of God. It is possible to argue, to protest, to shout against God, or to shout for God. As he puts it, indignation may be the most authentic expression of faith, for it is our testimony. It is the greatest testimony to our belief that God is just, in spite of what we often see around us in America and in the world. Yes, my friends, God is in the least likely places, and God is also present in the human conscience every time we make an ethical decision, whenever we act unethically, deny justice, or pervert the truth, we disregard God's purpose, period. We also disregard God's purpose when we think only of our own, even if that's the natural thing for all creatures to do. But there's no inherent reason why people should sacrifice their self-interest or own comfort for total strangers. If we're honest, most of us are very good at justifying our beliefs, our good fortune, our success, and we defend our good fortune at the expense of others. But being Jewish or Christian or Muslim is not an alternative to being a person. As my seminary provost, Michael Marmer, put it, and I quote, my being Jewish is a way of being human. 
beautiful, galling, rich and deep, flawed, and rooted. It is not that by emphasizing the Jewish part of me that I am permitted to care less about the planet or others. Through my Jewish commitment, I am invited to care more for those who are not Jewish and ditto for every other religion. Mature faith in a conscience-driven God means doing what is right because it is good, not because we get something for it. Mature faith means knowing that every place on earth, like Jacob, wherever we stand, can become holy ground because God stands there with us. Mature faith means believing to the core that every pair of human eyes is holy because in every human are also the eyes of God. Mature faith means knowing that time is sacred, not because of how we might use it, but because of how it might use us. Mature faith means knowing that if whatever we do is what a God of compassion, justice, and freedom expects, then God indeed is wherever we are. When Jacob awakens from his dream, he realizes for the first time that God is not present in one special place at a special time. God can be in all places at all times. And that consciousness begins right here. It continues in every other place we walk, whether downstairs amidst the clamor of the waffle shop or outside the front door, looking into the eyes of the homeless man who carries within him the same image of God as Moses and Jesus. In every place we walk, may we never become strangers to God, nor God to us. And let us say, Amen. Please rise for the priestly benediction. Yevarecha Adonai veyishmarecha. May the Lord bless you and keep you and protect you. Ya'er Adonai Pahana Elecha Vichunecha. May the Lord's countenance shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Isa Adonai, Isa Adonai, Panaha Elecha, Veyasem Lecha, Shalom. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon each and every one of you and those you love. And together as we leave this church, may we make and create what the world needs even more than love, shalom, wholeness, completeness, harmony, balance, long life, and peace. And let us say,